We are going to uh, spend the next three months uh, in Sunday mornings with a couple of breaks um, uh, looking at this book of the Revelation, the Revelation from Jesus Christ as it's introduced. And um, just a couple of introductory comments. Um, the Revelation, uh, a friend of mine is really into golf. And I believe in golf there are three major tournaments in golf. There is the US Open, there is the Masters, the American Masters, and then there is the British Open. Uh, I referred to it as the British Open to my friend said, oh, no, 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 you don't call it the British Open. It's the Open. It was the first Open golf tournament. And you call it the Open. And I, I said, I explored a little bit more, and it seemed that his main reason for insisting on this was because it gives you the opportunity to annoy Americans. Uh, because, uh, because they have the US Open, uh, and that's called the US Open to distinguish it from the Open. Well, anyway, uh, we're not about, if, I don't know if there are any Americans here. It was my friend who said this, not me, right? And, uh, uh, and, and the point, the reason I'm raising this is, sometimes you hear people call this book Revelations. Uh, it's not called Revelations. It's the Revelation. It is a single revelation that was given to John uh, when he was on the island of Patmos where he had been exiled and, uh, and they form a unity. There's a series of visions or scenes in the revelation, but let's do our best. You'll probably catch me making the mistake uh, before, before long um, of referring to it as revelations, but it is the revelation or revelation. Um, some resources that might help, you're probably aware that this is contested territory, uh, interpreting the book of Revelation. I was challenged years ago. Um, somebody, uh, I read somebody saying, there are lots of very, very bad interpretations of this book circulating. If you type, I don't know, Revelation meaning into Google, you will get many, many of them. And uh, this Bible scholar said, the answer to that is not for us all to avoid it, but it's for us to preach as well as we can on it and get good doctrine from it, which is after all what it's there for. So uh, to help you, if you want to go a little bit further into this stuff, I've got some resources to suggest. First of all, um, there is an excellent website called thebibleproject.com, thebibleproject.com. Who's, who's looked at it? I'm encouraged that quite a few of you have. It really is, in my judgment, as good as it gets. And there's two 10-minute videos that will introduce the book of Revelation to you. That is well worth 20 minutes of your time. Whatever is your favourite show on Amazon Prime or Netflix, watch one less episode and learn what Revelation is about. So you could watch a bit more of Meaningless Entertainment or be, you know, be presented in a really good way with the eternal verities of God. Your choice, but I recommend you look at thebibleproject.com. If you want a book to look at, uh, I would recommend... Tom Wright's Revelation for Everyone, or a little bit heavier, but still you know, well within the capacity of most of us, I'm sure, Michael Wilcox's The Message of Revelation. Either of those two good. I shall leave them down the front here if you want to have a look at them afterwards. Um, if you want to go a bit deeper still, I do have a recommendation. Come and see me afterwards, and uh, I'll point it out to you. So, let's look at the first three verses. Now, it'd be really good if you had the Bible in front of you, because this is... There's about 20 sermons in this first chapter, and I'm going to try and do it in the next 26 minutes. Okay, so 
In, in order to make that you know, useful, I think it would really help if you had the text in front of you. Uh, so I can point you to it and you can see, uh, see where we're going uh, or see, see what, what, um, what I'm working from. And first of all, just want to talk about who John is. Um, in the first three verses, he describes himself as God's servant John. Um, church tradition is this is John the Apostle. Uh, some scholars think looking at Revelation and comparing it with John, the other writings, it, it, John's Gospel and the three letters can't be the same person because the vocabulary is all different. I'm not sure what validity is to the, there is to those sort of studies. Um, but uh, I'm inclined for what it's worth to go with, um, I think, the, the beliefs of the early church, which is that this was written by uh, the Apostle John. But anyway, um, be that as it may. The, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, but the process of transmission appears to be, if you look closely at verses 1 to 3, God, the Father, gives the revelation to Jesus, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to John. So that seems to be the process of transmission of what we get here. And it's the angel, if you like, that facilitates the visions, and you see this from time to time, John interacting with the angel who is speaking to him and giving him the visions that we'll see over coming weeks. The letter is written to, set, it is actually a letter, and it's written to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, as soon as you hear the word seven in scripture, your ears should prick up, because seven was a symbolic number to the ancient Hebrews, and it meant completion, or what is perfect. And in addition to literally writing this to seven churches, I think we're meant to understand that, that this word is for all of God's people everywhere, the whole church, the seven churches, the complete church. Um, but there is a historical setting and a cultural setting. Asia Minor, um, there's good uh, historical research to show at the time, was um, the region most enthusiastically embracing what was called the cult of Caesar or emperor worship. And typically what happened was uh, Caesar was celebrated as, please note, saviour and lord. Very important that, because of course when Jesus is given that title in scripture, the early readers of the Gospels didn't just hear something about Caesar, sorry, about Jesus, they heard something about Caesar. Because if you say Jesus is saviour and lord in a context where you're told to believe that Caesar is saviour and lord, you're making a political statement. You are saying, this Caesar, he might think he's a god, and he did, but he's not. He's just a human ruler. Jesus is saviour and lord. And, and this cult of emperor worship was very prevalent. They, they've done archaeological research around uh, Asia Minor and found that at the time John was writing, there was a lot of evidence of this kind of cult of emperor worship. And in places, it was enforced. You as a citizen had to turn up and put your little pinch of incense into the fire at the altar. And if you didn't, persecution came your way. You had to bow down, you had to bow the knee to this form of idolatry. And if you didn't, there was trouble. And Revelation was written to address these people who were in this culture where 
they're being invited to worship a crucified Messiah from a backwater of the Roman Empire instead of Caesar in all his glory and power. And if they're going to stay true to that, they're going to face persecution and possibly martyrdom. That's who Revelation is written to. Christians under pressure. Revelation is a translation of Greek word. Uh, basically, apocalypse would be an English transliteration. And when we hear the word apocalypse, what we think is uh, sort of lurid pictures of terrible natural disasters or sort of cities going up in flames or stuff like that. But that actually really isn't how we should understand the idea of this apocalyptic literature that we have here. This is a very particular style of literature. It flourished between um, 200 BC and 100 AD in Jewish circles. It was written for very particular reasons. And the best way to understand it is an unveiling. It's as if uh, God comes to people under pressure and he says, look, you're in this situation under pressure. We'll look at that a bit more fully in a little while. And you might think that I've abandoned you and, and, and that you may as well give up. But let me show you what is really happening in human history. So there's an unveiling. That's what the apocalypse is. It's apocalyptic literature. This style of literature is all about saying the world looks like X, but actually, underneath it all, God is at work, and it's really like Y. We're told that... Um, uh, it concerns that which must soon take place. Or at the end of, the, uh, at the end of verse 3, the time is near. And this is an underlying message of the book of Revelation, that in the context of the suffering and the persecution and the beleaguered state of these churches, when it appears that all seems lost, and maybe the wise thing to do is just put that pinch of snuff, that pinch of incense into the fire and just do your duty, worship Caesar and the whole thing goes away. John is saying the time of God's bringing all things to completion in Christ is very near. The time is soon. We'll look at that in a moment or two. The time is near. But in the meantime, there is blessing for the reader. Congratulations, Jean. And there is blessing for the hearer if they take this message to heart. So Revelation is going to confront you with God's underlying, the underlying reality of God's purposes in the world. It's going to confront me with that message. And the question is, are we going to accept that? Countercultural as it will be, in which case there's blessing for us. Or actually, will we hedge our bets and say, well, that might be true, so I'll turn up to church on Sunday, but... For the rest of the week, I'll live as though Caesar is Lord. Let's just think about Jesus' second coming for, for a moment, because that is what John is referring to when he says the time is near and what must soon take place. At least there's an allusion to that. Why would he write the time is near? It's 2,000 years ago. Jesus still hasn't come back. There's lots of people who reckon they can read the scriptures and work out when it's going to happen, and so far they have all been wrong without exception. Um, but John says the time is near. I think what it means is this. The underlying reality that every human being, if they are wise, has to come to terms with is 
that history is in God's hands and one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we're told he will judge the living and the dead. And whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, that is what is going to happen. That is a reality for each one of us, not just for church people, uh, not just for wicked people, not just for good people, for all people. And so that reality is near us at all times. We may feel it's near, we may feel it's not near. We may give it our attention, we may not give it our attention, but that reality is the most important reality that any one of us face. Jesus is coming back. And we'll stand before him, every knee will confess him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him as Lord. And that is the underlying reality that all history points towards, every leader will have to acknowledge, every person must come to terms with before it comes to terms with them. The time is near. This must soon take place. All right. Well, let's, let's move on and look at verses 4 and 5 and look at the greeting. It's written in a typical style of an ancient letter. First of all, you get the author, John. Whoever designed the British way of writing letters, where you put the author's name at the end, you need to know who's written the letter at the beginning, don't you? Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You know, let's say I receive on Valentine's Day a really lovely romantic letter. And I read it, and, and, and this uh, person is telling me how wonderful I am and how much they love me. And I get to the end, and it's not Naomi. <laughs> That's going to fundamentally change the way I receive that letter, right? You can hazard a guess as to how I might react. Depends who it was, probably. Um, but the point I'm making is very important to know who's written the letter before you even start reading it. The ancients were wiser than us in this, although we have corrected it with email. Um, so John was the writer, and he's writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and I've already explained, probably therefore in one sense representative of the whole church, above and beyond the, uh, the historical context. And he says this, grace and peace to you. We see that again and again in the, New Te- in, the, in the letters of the New Testament. That is the greeting. They always had a first greeting in ancient letters, and this is what Christians always receive from the writers, grace and peace. We're living in a culture which is increasingly judgmental. It's very interesting. A few years ago, I would have said our culture was not judgmental at all. In fact, it it, it trained people so highly in tolerance that you couldn't call anything out. That is changing fast, actually. It's becoming a culture where if you don't say the right thing, straight away. I'm not listening to that. It's becoming a highly judgmental culture. And into that, word, into that, John says, grace. I'm going to, you know, we're a community of grace. We're going to do our best to think the best of each other. And love each other. And God, has, God is gracious towards you and me in all our failings. And secondly, peace. We live in a culture ridden with anxiety. But for the Christian, the blessing is peace for you. Now we find it hard. I'm a born warrior. But there is beauty here. Imagine Jesus, his very presence. It would calm all your worries, wouldn't it? May Jesus give you grace and peace, the blessing that is for all Christians. And this letter, we are told, comes not just, this grace and peace rather, comes from not just a blessing from John, but it comes from the one who is, who was, and is to come, probably a reference to God the Father, 
The seven spirits before his throne, there's that number seven again. I don't think we're supposed to think that there are seven individual spirits before God's throne, but there is a complete and perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then the greeting also comes, the grace and peace comes from the Lord Jesus. We're told three things about him. He is the faithful witness. Now that word witness is literally martyr, and Jesus was martyred. He died because of his testimony. He would not accept that Caesar is Lord. And he was ground under the boot heel of Caesar on the cross. The empires of this world do do that to people who will not bow down to them. In one way or another, they demand conformity. Jesus wouldn't conform, and so he had to be the faithful witness. He died on the cross as a symbol of what human power does to righteous people. He was the faithful witness. He suffered just like John suffered on the Isle of Patmos, just like many of his readers were suffering. But, and more hopefully, he's the firstborn from the dead. He rose from the dead. And he didn't just raise for himself, he was the firstborn amongst others who would rise from the dead. This was the hope of those who were suffering uh, under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. And then thirdly, He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. These are foundational things that John wants these Christians to be reminded of. These are things that Jesus wants these Christians to be reminded of. It looks as though Caesar is Lord, but he isn't. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In our day, as we look at a society in utter confusion about sex, and the role it plays in its increasingly politicised role it's playing in all our lives. As we look at a culture which on the one hand has had it never so good, but on the other hand is ridden with anxiety, in which there are deep fractures over historic injustices and things that have gone wrong in the past between various groups in society. We look at all of that, and as in the middle of that the church in Western culture, declining and feeling weak. And perhaps under all this pressure, we think, is it really realistic to hold on to the teaching of the Scriptures? Is it realistic to go on teaching sexual purity in this culture? Is it realistic to speak words of justice and love and grace when everyone in the midst of a culture in which everyone's cancelling each other is it is it possible is it is it worth it should we just give up under this pressure the reality that changes that is that Jesus died he rose again and he's the king of kings He's calmed greater storms than our culture. The issues that Christians face in 50 years will be different from the issues we face today. And the ones who will overcome are those who hold true to the message of the Scriptures. Let God be true and every man a liar. You can trust God's Word. 
Societies can be built on it. Individuals can be built on it and it will give you a future. Jesus is coming soon. He is the King of Kings. Paul said to the Corinthians, what I, I, he talked about the gospel and he said, what is of first importance is this. Jesus died according to the scriptures and he rose again according to the scriptures. He now rules. All the injustices of the past will one day be put right. All the confusion that people face in this lifetime will one day be cleared. He is coming. And if we stay true to him, we are on the right side of history. We go on with some of the most beautiful words, I think, in Scripture to the ascription of praise. Again, it was normal in the New Testament letters to get a word of worship at this point uh, to God. And so let's have a a quick look at it. It says, John has been talking about the God who sends grace and peace. Now he speaks directly to him. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. These are amazing words. I hope they make your heart sing. Maybe you, like me, have done things and said things and thought things that you're ashamed of. Maybe there are things you've done in the past that you really would prefer nobody ever knew about. And um, I, I think if we're on it, I think the only reason that wouldn't be true of you, incidentally, is if you've got a seared conscience. Because none of us live as we should. Even now, are you proud of every thought that goes through your mind? And when we think of the great grievous things that have gone on through history, the terrible oppression that people have wreaked on each other, in different historical periods it has taken different forms. And those injustices of the past being part of our life today, an inescapable part of our present, What is the answer to all of this? God's answer was Jesus wrestling with it all and overcoming it on the cross, giving his divine blood to redeem men and women who are steeped in every kind of shortcoming and meanness. Really wish I had the rest of the sermon on that, but I'm going to have to move on. If you feel the pain of that, know this. The devil will keep reminding you of your shortcomings. Jesus freed you from your sin on the cross. He broke those things apart from you. He loves you. And he did that for you and for me. And not only will he cleanse us, but he makes us useful in his kingdom. And then John, uh, in verse 7, probably quotes a hymn. That's why it's an inverted commas. They think it's probably an early Christian hymn. The Christians were writing hymns right back then and says, look, he is coming and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people will mourn because of him. Jesus' second coming will not be good for everybody. For those who've refused to acknowledge him as Lord, for those who've turned their back on his, his grace, for those who perpetuate the injustices, who have a seared conscience, for those who oppress others, 
for those who are deceitful. They will mourn when he comes and they realise what they have rejected. Well, a few brief words before I finish on the content then of the first vision. John describes himself as a, a brother and companion in the suffering uh, that these, uh, and the patient endurance that these disciples are having to go through. Do we feel beleaguered as Christians at this, in this 21st century? Maybe we do. I certainly do at times. John says, I'm your companion in it. And he suffered more than we'll ever have to. It seems likely he was exiled into a pretty rough place in Patmos. He's in Patmos, he says, on the Lord's Day, which is how the early Christians referred to Sunday, it seems, in the Spirit. And when we read those words in the Spirit, it's not the only time in Revelation you'll read them. I don't think you're supposed to think he was in some kind of transcendental meditation. He was essentially having his quiet time. He had opened his hands and his heart and his mind to God on that island, and at that moment he was in Patmos, like we're in Purley, but he was also in the Spirit. And you have this, he has this vision of Jesus among the lampstands. The lampstands are a picture of the churches, wandering among the churches, just as I might imagine Jesus wandering among his people here and at Christ Church down the road and all the other churches around the world this, this day that will meet in his name. And he's wandering and he's caring and he's tending and he's speaking. And he's holding the seven stars in his hands, which are, uh, we're told, the angels of the church, scholars are, uh, uncertain whether that refers, to, that's, a, that's a reference to the pastors of the church, an interpretation to which, as you would imagine, I am drawn, or whether it is uh, just the churches themselves, or whether there's a literal angel attached to each church. You can choose any of those. They all seem to me to be possible and helpful. But he is holding the churches in his hand, and he's walking amongst the churches. And then we get all this imagery of Jesus and uh, almost certainly here, uh, John is picking up or is being given an image which reflects back to Daniel and an image of God that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. But here it's Jesus who is pictured in much the same, in, in much the same language. Elsewhere, God says, God the Father says in, verse, in chapter 1, uh, verse, give me a second, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. Alpha and Omega is the first and last letters of the, Jewish, of, of the uh, Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. Then we get Jesus saying exactly the same thing about himself. I am the first and the last. This is a straightforward merging of the divinity of God the Father and the divinity of Jesus Christ. The two are separate personalities within the Trinity, but their status as God is clearly here held together. And... Um, and so Jesus is portrayed with all sorts of figurative language. But the one I want to focus on just for a moment is the sword that comes out of his mouth. The truth. This idea that Jesus was just comforting and nice to everybody is widespread in our culture, but it is profoundly mistaken. It won't withstand half an hour of reading the Gospels. Jesus spoke the truth to people. And sometimes that was an encouraging truth. But at other times, it was brutal. And the more I reflect on Christian community and human community, I've come to the conclusion we all really struggle with the truth. We tell, tell ourselves comforting lies all the time. Maybe you've watched that film, A Few Good Men, and 
you've got that image that I've got in my mind of Jack Nicholson, legendary actor, in court saying, you can't handle the truth. Well, I think, it's up to, I think he was right about that. A lot of people, they can't handle the truth. In one sense, the whole reason we have a whole legal system and court system is because people can't handle the truth and it's a dickens of a job to get it out of them. The reason we don't like the truth, according to the Bible, is we suppress the truth because of unrighteousness. We do things wrong and then we lie and lie and lie to pretend that right is wrong. Jesus speaks truth. It's like a sword coming out of his mouth. And so here's a depiction of Jesus according to this chapter. Next slide, please. Now, I don't think you're supposed to think Jesus literally looks like that. This is imagery which all carries a meaning. But when John encounters this, and what is lost to us really is exactly what... I mean, John gives us a report, but it's all laden with this apocalyptic literature. I mean, if you tried to write down what you'd seen in a dream, it wouldn't be easy, would it? But as John encounters Jesus, it says he fell on the floor as though he was dead. And Jesus has to pick him up and tell him not to be afraid. And this is really just the final word. What we want in the church is the reality of the presence of Jesus in our lives, in the church. And um, by nature, I don't like too, too much demonstrable, you know, emotional demonstration and stuff. I'm not really a very excitable person by nature. I don't know where you'd put yourself on the excitability. So I, I'm sort of personally quite at peace with singing and praying and probably keeping a fairly even emotional tone. But if Jesus actually presented himself to me, I think my emotional tone, my emotional balance might come under some pressure. Let's put it that way, right? If Jesus actually unveiled himself here in all his glory, we'd be overwhelmed, wouldn't we? Who knows how you'd react? What I reckon wouldn't happen is, you'd say, oh, Jesus, great. Um, let's sing the final song and then we'll all go home, all right? That, that wouldn't happen, would it? Now, you know, we have to live in the real world with real times, with real food in the oven, ready for you to go home, all that kind of stuff. I get that. But I suppose what I'm saying is, if, like me, you sometimes find it quite hard when people get excited by Jesus, and there's a kind of human reaction that says, oh, can't they all just kind of keep it cushy? Um, can I ask you, like me, to show a bit of, uh, extend a bit of license? Because actually, if people are getting excited, that is an appropriate way to be. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a line somewhere where it tips over from excitement about Jesus into drawing attention to yourself, all sorts of other stuff. And pray for us church ministers, because we have to try and make judgments as to where that line is. And we're only human, right, like, like, like you. And it's very difficult to make these judgments. But if I say as a general principle in this church, we would rather have the overexcitement of the kindergarten than the order of the morgue, will you all agree with that? So I don't think you can be too excited about Jesus, can you? but you certainly could be not excited enough.